When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast. And I say welcome back because most of you are returning listeners, but I reckon there may be some newbies. There may be some people who, in the last week have been caught up in one of what I can remember is maybe the biggest, I think it is the biggest tennis hype movement uh, of the 21st century, certainly in Britain. Emma Raducanu has transformed for at least a few months the landscape of British tennis. We will, of course, discuss that and a whole lot more. Novak Djokovic being beaten in the US Open final. Daniil Medvedev seizing his first slam. Leila Fernandez reaching her first Grand Slam final and falling at the final hurdle. Uh, we'll also look back at fantasy tennis. George is very keen for us to talk about that a lot. I am not. Uh, I think it's my career worst performance, uh, having carried just one player into the second week. George, quite hard to know where to start. Um... At what point did you believe Emma Raducanu could win the US Open? Oof. Good question. I mean, we, we, we did kind of say last week, didn't we, that given the recent landscape of the women's game, why not? I mean, that was that was the big question last week when she kind of got to the fourth round. Why not? You know, it's possible mm-hmm. these things are happening in the women's game. It's still incredibly unlikely, but why not? But if you're asking me honestly, the first match I thought she was going to win the tournament was the final. That was the only match yeah. I had her down as favourite, really. I thought Bencic and Sakari would, while they're not, okay, Grand Slam champions, they're pretty seasoned. They're both, they've been top 10 players. Um, well, Sakari on form, I'm saying this year, is probably a top 10 player. Bencic yeah. has been. Um, so I, I thought they might find her out because she hadn't really played someone of that calibre um, in a slam match before. Mm. But when Sabalenka was taken out on the other side, and she'd come through against uh, Bencic and Sakari. I have to say, yeah, I thought the final she'd win. And I thought she'd win in straight sets, and she did. Um, I actually thought that was a, the closest match of hers I watched, the final. Like, I thought Fernandez gave a good kind of gritty display. But that, that says more about how routine the other matches were rather than saying it was 
an all-time classic Titanic struggle. Um, but mm. I, I'm just in kind of disbelief still. It's been an amazing summer, really, for Radicana. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny, really. Um, you know, we're we're recording this on Monday lunchtime, so 36 hours really after after her US Open triumph. And I'm kind of with you, George. I'm still slightly in shock uh, and and kind of still struggling to process it because it is. Uh, one of the biggest sporting upsets ever. I mean, no one, and I mean almost no one, had heard of Emma Raducanu in the UK uh, even three months ago. And now nine million people watched her on TV uh, in the UK on Saturday night. Um, people may listening outside the UK might not know, but Amazon Prime have the, the rights to the US Open here, and they did a deal to show it on terrestrial TV, which which meant that everyone in the country could, if they wanted to, turn their TV on and watch uh, watch Raducanu. Uh, Nine million of them did at the peak. Seven million average, which is very strong as well, which is basically the exact same numbers as the men's final at Wimbledon this year produced, which is also on terrestrial TV. And it's also on the BBC, which has a little bit of a greater reach because of various reasons. Um, Calvin, I think you've got a, a dissenting opinion on this. Not that much of a surprise, <laughs> is it? Um. I'm not dissenting opinion. I just, my position is that it says more about the women's game and the unpredictability of the women's game, which I don't think necessarily is a good thing Mm. than it does about anything else. But I'm not taking anything away from Emma for winning it. She was phenomenal. She's a phenomenal player. Um, And it could so happen. She won everything so easy that if she played stronger opposition that she could have beat them. But it's strange to me that someone is winning a Grand Slam without losing a set and the best player they beat is the person ranked 11th in the world. Mm. That's what I, I think just makes it a bit of an oddity. Yeah. Um, you have obviously known about Emma Raducanu for a long time. I, I think whenever we've talked about either to you or to other people involved in British tennis who the next big woman is, it, it's been Emma. Maybe a good place to go is, is your first memories of her as a player um, and kind of what you what your impressions of, of her were? Um, the first time I heard about her, a mate of mine used to coach um, a girl who was her age, and there were three, but there were basically three players who were seen as very good at that age. There was Amani Banks, um, a girl called Indiana Spink from Gosling, and Emma Raducanu, and they basically dominated everything in that age group. Um, and so I kind of saw them all around a little bit. Um, there wasn't any definite feeling that Emma was the best out of those three. They were just all seen as pretty good. Um, mm. And then as time progressed, it was clear that she had a little bit more to her game than the other two did. Um, and then one of them sort of faded off pretty quick. Amani Banks is still playing and I think was doing... This is the thing with it. She was doing what you'd say is all right. Um, sort of picking up some ranking points, that kind of thing. But... The window's been moved now, hasn't it? Onto what what can be expected of that kind of thing. <laughs> I think that's the thing that that might have the biggest follow through from a performance point of view is that um, I noticed yesterday a, a, a British player won a fifteen k futures. Paul Jubb won a fifteen k futures. Nothing about it at all on any LTA uh, websites or anything. <laughs> and that's the sort of thing. It's not long ago that they were posting in the NTC. Um, reception area they were had a huge computer screen boasting that Katie Bolter had come runner-up in a 15k in Sharm El Sheikh um, <laughs> and, oh yeah 
but yeah, I mean, it, it's been, it was evident. I, I first saw, probably saw a practice and hitting balls about two or three years ago, maybe a bit more. Mm. Um, and yeah, just, just a very good player, very focused. That's what stood out. But yeah, I think there's been a little bit of rewriting of history that um, she's always been so focused and so zoned in and everything was on point. That's not entirely the feedback that I got at the time. And there's no problem with that. She was a 15, 16 year old girl at the time. But, um, you know, there was instances of not having balls to, to practice with and that kind of thing coming to the court like ill prepared, but not loads of things, just what you'd expect from people at that age. But that's fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, just on the narrative point, I mean, it's been quite interesting hearing the shift from people maybe talking about Emma last year or the year before compared to, to now. So obviously Emma was drafted into a few of the Fed Cup squads, um, whether just to train with the players or um, actually being a member of the team. Um, Billie Jean King Cup now, George. It was Fed Cup at the time, to be fair to me. Mm, dubious that. Now I'll call it the, the BJK Cup. Too, it's too, terrible, isn't it? It's such a that. But, you, but for reasons, as we've joked about before, you can't really shorten it by one. <laughs> um, Carry on, George. We're getting in trouble here. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of funny to hear how people around her, the opinion kind of shifted. There was a lot of, you know, as is always the case with these players, it's always, you know, she could be top 50. She She's got everything she needs to reach top 15. We'll see what will happen. But we have concerns about this. And quite often it was physicality or, you know, is, is she strong enough to do it against the best players? You know, she's dominating a lot of players at these, this age group or this kind of category. Will that translate higher? And then at Wimbledon this summer, I mean, bearing in mind she'd won like two Grand Slam matches and not against like opponents that you're thinking wow, she's, she's blowing away, you know, like a top 20 player. You know, it wasn't, mm -hmm. it wasn't like that. I know Vondrasova had been a, a French Open finalist, but that, even at the time, that result kind of was a little bit under the radar. Um, yeah. Looks kind of better in the context of Vondrasova then going on to win silver at the Olympics, perhaps. But, you know, she was pretty out of form. It wasn't like that worth getting excited from, from our perspective as a media. But speaking to people then, we're suddenly like, Emma's definitely top 10. It's definitely happening. And it is interesting, this shift in a time where she was barely playing. And I know it's hard to see when they suddenly start translating it at the top level, but it's really interesting to me how, how that just flipped because they're still players, coaches and people you speak to are still normally kind of wanting to downplay it a bit. But just a couple of matches in at Wimbledon, they were convinced she'd be top 10. And I remember Calvin was kind of sticking to the more traditional coach line of pouring cold water on it. But I don't think anyone would have possibly predicted she'd then go on and win this US Open. It's just, mm. it's bonkers. <laughs> I think we're going to come back to that quite a lot as we discuss, even over the days and weeks and months, we might come back to just bonkers. I really enjoyed um, on the prime coverage, Tim Henman was obviously courtside and, and you know, we, we have opinions about Tim's abilities and analysts. He's very good in the comm box. I think we all agree on that and, and maybe not so suited to, sitting next to the court and smiling at Raducanu. And three times uh, they threw to him, and, and three times in the space of about 30 seconds, he just went, it's a joke. It's an absolute joke. It's just a joke. And I, I think what was quite sweet about that is sort of the Mark Lawrence thing where, like, it was just what we were all saying. We were just like, this is stupid. This is ridiculous. 
ridiculous. Like, how is this even real? You know, you couldn't do a Paul Bettany film about this. It would be too unrealistic. Um, I suppose we should talk about Cutgate um, and the cut. Um, if people weren't watching live, what on earth were you doing? Um, but she, Emma slid to make a backhand. Uh, incidentally, she, she mentioned sliding in her previous uh, press conference. And she'd said, oh, I didn't know how to slide. It turns out I can, which I don't know, maybe she's just being modest. It was a very odd thing to say. But anyway, so she slid to make a backhand, um, I think at, at 30 all, and, and dragged her, her back knee along the ground and cut it open. So it was break point. She was serving for the, the title and uh, she's all of a sudden bleeding from the leg and has to call a medical timeout. Has to or not will be a point of some debate. Um, she obviously takes the medical timeout, uh, I think wins the next two points and, and takes takes the title. Uh, Calvin, we, we discussed this a little bit in the WhatsApp group. Um my understanding of the Grand Slam rule is if you're bleeding, you have to deal with it. Uh, maybe that that isn't how it works functionally in most levels of tennis. I think uh, there's not any criticism, but I think she did everything that she had every right to do and, and everybody would have done. Um, she had to stop. She couldn't have played with blood pouring down her knee. Um, but my issue with it was I think the whole thing took a bit too long, um, mm. a lot longer than it needed to. Like, I think... Um, I don't know whether it was Hemman who said it or whether it was Courier who said it. Like, why did it take 90 seconds to, in inverted commas, diagnose the yeah. issue? Um, and I think, you know, in, in the heat of the moment, being that there was basically, there was a situation where we were probably about two minutes away from either the match being over or there being a change of ends, depending yeah. on who won the next three points. I don't see why they wouldn't have gone, stick a pla- like, quickly wipe it, stick a plaster on it, and we'll deal with the next change of ends. Mm. And, and I think it's equally con, uh, inconsequential and hugely consequential what it represented. Because for now, there was, there's momentum changes in those types of matches. Emma had already had a match point. She'd lost it. Um, and then Layla had played two phenomenal points to get to break point up. It, a huge forehand. And that is what sort of how she'd gone through the whole tournament, Fernandez, in turning matches round where she looked out of them hitting a huge forehand down the line, getting the crowd revved up. She had, she did the thing where she she waves her hands in the air, the crowd were going mad. And then suddenly we've got a five minute break while mm. we put, it just looked so over the top what they were doing with it. Like, yeah. I, just, like I just don't know why that needed doing at that minute. Look, the flip side of it was it, Emma could have, just, there's nothing to say that she wouldn't have just served an ace and we'd be back at juice and, yeah. and that would happen. But these things, they're, they're, they're sliding doors moments, aren't they? And there's, there's a, mm. a huge amount of sliding doors moments in this um, in this tournament. Like, we still don't know what happens if Jen Brady doesn't pull out in the first round. <laughs> that is a great point. That is yeah. so, Jen Brady, incidentally, number 13 seed, uh, drew Radicano in the first round and pulled out injured. And, and yeah, as you say, the rest is history. That um, Stephanie Vogelay might, might have intervened, but um, she couldn't. Um, George? Just just running through the rule here. I mean, she, she didn't have a choice, right? You, you have to stop. Yeah, it's pretty simple. If there's blood coming from a player, the umpire has to call it. That's, uh, mm. so yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm actually totally with Calvin on this one. Though. No problem with the stoppage. But I think, you know, I think I've tweeted at the time something like this is the longest ever sticker plaster on break I've seen in my life. Like it was yeah. just such a nothing thing. Obviously, there was blood coming down the leg and fair enough, cleared it up, but it should have been just like, wipe stick get on right? yeah 
And Fernandez, you know, as as you would in the moment, was was upset about it, and she was complaining to the the tournament referee, who I can't remember her name, but she's a former British number one, which I thought was quite funny given the circumstances. Yeah, um, and I'm sure she was completely impartial, and like as you say, George, she was pretty much just enforcing the rules as they were. Um, but yeah, Fernandez was like visibly upset, and I think she's been pretty composed throughout the tournament, as we've discussed, and. After the final point ended, she, she was in tears, and I don't think she would have been had that not played out. She she felt a profound sense of injustice, uh, and not quite rightly, but you can understand why she felt that way and and felt hard done by. Um, yeah, sorry, George, go on. I was just gonna say, I mean, like, yeah, you can understand it in that moment, but on the balance of the match, I think she couldn't look back and think I was the player deserve to win that I don't think I mean she showed yeah. great qualities throughout the tournament of just like hanging in there so many times but the quality to me felt that Raducanu was really clearly the stronger player in that match um, so yeah yeah let, I mean let's talk about the, the match itself and, and the final because it was a cracking match um, two girls who hit the ball very hard um, kind of unrelentingly and remorselessly uh, Calvin, I think you said on a number of occasions, we weren't quite with you, that they only ever felt like it was going one way, uh, certainly in the second set. Yeah, I felt that I, I could see more routes to Emma winning than than I could see to Fernandez winning. I think if your only way of winning the match is hitting clean winners all the time against somebody who you're not necessarily going to overpower, then that's you, you're in a bit of trouble there. You need more than one one way of winning a match and, and the only way that you could the only route of, of there's basically three ways to win a tennis match three ways to win a tennis point sorry you can hit a winner your opponent can hit an error or you can force your opponent into hitting an error and mm. you felt the only that there was on based on those percentages there was only a 33 percent chance of Fernandez winning the match by the time we got to the second set because Emma wasn't making errors and she wasn't really forcing her into hitting errors either mm. George I think just the thing that's impressed me so much about Raducanu, not only in that match, but throughout the tournament, is that every kind of minor challenge, and they are minor challenges because let's remember she didn't lose a single set. So she was never like, she's a set down. She knows she's got to come back or, you know, in major trouble in a set because she never lost one five games. But there were so many small moments in that match that could have been serious pressure, whether it's just going break point down or whether Fernandez has just broken back and, felt like getting a slight swing of momentum and just winning that next game holding with an ace or whatever. You know, there were so many big, big, small moments, you might call them, that she just managed so well and won. And I think, again, just the maturity throughout this tournament to not make a situation a situation is is just so impressive, I thought. I don't, I'm probably not articulating it that well, but does that, does that resonate with you both at that point? I think the strange thing now going forward, this morning I had a conversation with a, another journalist, um, Simon Briggs, called me to get some uh, opinions on it. And one of the things he asked me was, what can she get better at? What what does she improve? And it, my response was that there's still so many unanswered things that we don't know. She's won a slam, but we still don't really know where she's at. We still, again, it, it's not, we still don't know how she responds if she loses a set. Because like, like some players are like that. They don't, the last time she lost a set, she lost a match. Um, and we still don't know how she plays against certain players, like players who can, I'd say apart from Bencic, she had, Emma's a good ball striker. She's not a huge ball striker, 
But apart from Benchich, she probably hit the ball harder than anybody who she played. So that we don't know how she responds against the bigger hitters of, of the game. Um, we don't know how she copes with the pressure of everything. She was, should have been in a bit of a bubble there, although New York is, is kind of a bit of a bubble. But there's so many things that we still don't know. But like looking at it from, the, from what we could take from the tournament, I don't think she can necessarily get any better than that because it was pretty much perfect. On You, you wouldn't say she needs to work on a serve at all or anything like that or work on a particular shot. But we still don't know what her actual level is. Because like, we, like if you were going to say what's her ranking now, what, what is her actual ranking? What is her live ranking in inverted commas? Where should she sit? It'd be tough to say, wouldn't it? You, you could position it anywhere from 20. I don't think she's lower than 23, but it could be 23, anything up to like one. At the <laughs> there is no regular like number number one. Like I'm, I'm not sure, you know, you, if she played Ash Barty tomorrow, I'm not sure that Barty's definitely beating her or or that she's definitely beating Barty. We still, because of the way that it's come about, we, there's still so much we don't know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just we're lacking a total body of context in big moments. Is it just the case that she handles big moments better than any other women's player on the tour now? Is this just going to be a thing? Is she just going to roll through things? Or I suppose the, the only evidence we have where she didn't handle it well was Wimbledon, you know, that, that last 16 match. But it'd be unfair to say every time she ends up in a bad situation, she's going to quit or something's going to go wrong or, you know, she'll have breathing difficulty. So... It's just so unheard of. I think she is the first uh, woman to win a slam in just two events. Um, I think Pam Shriver reached the final on her second yeah. one. Um, so, I mean, it's I, uncharted territory, really. I find it very interesting looking back, you know, kind of in journalism and, and in sport, we, we look at moments kind of the next day and then we move on. That's how the news cycle works. We don't often look back, back and look again at things that, but if we look again at that Tom Janovich match at Wimbledon and what happened, which is basically that Emma got into a really physical match at the end of the first set, you know, got puffed out and then got kind of mentally kind of puffed out as well and, and had those breathing difficulties. And it was a kind of panic attack rolled into a kind of exhaustion thing. I think that's a fair way of framing it. Um, but what I find interesting now is how incredibly out of kilter that is with everything else she's done this year. Like, I don't know whether she took a lot away from that or, or, or what, but it, it feels like that's a completely different player who went through that on that night on court one. Well, the thing is, she said the one thing she learned most from that match is that how much physically she needs to get tougher mm. on the tour, and she's done all the work on that since. Now, I'm no fitness expert, but if you hear a lot of these players go on about how they improve physically, I don't believe it's something that's necessarily going to be solved between Wimbledon and the US Open on that front. But what did mm. happen is that she was just never in that position, was she? Like, I mean, we could look at her lower level results in between as well. You know, she lost in three to Clara Taus and she was beaten quite comfortably by Zhang, I think, in one of those events. Um you know, well, she retired from a match, right? She went off on a wheelchair in, uh, in Landersville. Yeah. But there was another one where she recovered from a set down and won. So, you know, mm. there were examples of other matches in between then. Um, you might just say she got battle hardened in that little run of the challenges that she just needed to start playing that little level up. Um, but I mean, it, it, 
as we've said, and I think we'll just keep saying, we just have no idea. And I don't think we'll truly know until we start seeing her in the back end of the tour this year and in the Australian Open next year. Like, where is she going to go from here? I don't think, I think it's one of those things that players say. It's kind of an easy box to tick when they go, I need to get fitter. You'll notice that all the time. And it's always one of those that when they start winning, it's because I got fitter. There's no way she's fitter now than what she was at Wimbledon. I think that what happened at Wimbledon was a complete freak. I don't expect for a second that anything like that will happen again. I think, as you said at the time, James, I think it's just one of those things that you can't prepare for. It comes on and what what are you going to do about it? I don't think it means any, I don't even think it as ridiculous as, Piers Morgan was like making out that it was some mental weakness. I think you can only say it's a mental weakness if you make a choice um, to do something. Um, and I don't think for a second she made a choice to rag in when that happened. Um, I think what, what I would say more about the, we still don't know about when things aren't going well, is it affects your game. Like she's she's been riding a wave of confidence for three weeks. And what happens when those forehand lines that she goes for and hits it within an inch of the line when you're down a set, they're not as easy to make. They're they're all well and good when when you're a set up and in a, in a U.S. Open final and and two love up or something or in a U.S. Open semi final. They're not so. You, it's whether you can go for them still when you're a set and for all or or when you're a breakdown. I think they're the things where I'm talking about. We still don't know how she responds to that, and I'm not saying that she won't respond to it. I'm sure she will, but we still just don't know on it. And that, that's kind of what I was trying to say earlier. It's like. From what we saw, she was responding to every mini moment amazingly, every slight problem, but they weren't big size holes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's we just don't have that body of work to compare who she is, where she is, how she's gonna handle everything. Mm. Apart from she's handled it in a way that she didn't need to get into those moments. If she keeps doing that, then she's gonna have a wonderful career where she just rolls everyone in straight sets. I think that there's, there was, I always come back to this. I say this a lot because it sticks in my mind as something from tennis that I remember one, one year at Andre Agassi, um, he, he basically tore his way through the, the matches, the, the tournaments before the US Open. I think he won both Canada and Cincinnati. And then he tore his way to the final without losing a set, maybe. And he was a huge favourite going into Sanfras. And Sanfras won the first set. And then he ended up like winning the second, the next two sets pretty comfortably. And Agassi in his press conference after said he forgot what it was like to be losing. And he mm. forgot how it is to play in that. And, and, it, and he said it's a different mentality altogether because he'd, he'd not been challenged for basically about eight weeks in a row. And then he was. And, and that was probably the, the, the best run of form I ever saw Agassi on. And he just went to pieces in it. So it, it's, you can never really tell how they're. Going to, how people are going to respond. The only other thing I'd, I'd, we spoke about this in the WhatsApp group is the, the idea that, that she came through as a qualifier and she did. But I think if we compare it, the, I think it's a bit of an anomaly that because she really wouldn't have been a qualifier in, in real terms. She, she basically was, I think she was already basically a pro, somewhere maybe about the 80th best player in the world, I'd say. That's where she would have mm. been. This is not like Aslan Karatsev when he did it in the Australian Open who'd been hanging around sort of 150 to 200 in the world for a few years. Emma was on a trajectory that, in hindsight, you find it pretty strange that she didn't get a wild card um, <laughs> after doing well at Wimbledon and that kind of thing. And, and yeah, so I think that that's, that to me isn't as much of a, as a, as a strange thing as, as the other stuff um, yeah. that, I don't, didn't really class her as a qualifier, if that makes sense. It's funny you mentioned that wildcard because I think the kind of 
received wisdom on this was that she she got a wild card into that IMG event, didn't she, where she lost to to Zhang in the first round, three and two. Yeah. I think the received wisdom is it, had she won that, that was almost like a, a wild card audition in the US. So right, okay, taken their advantage there because that was pretty much the only. I think I'm right. So that is the only tour event or closer tour event she played. Um, the other two were oh, as in like as in tour level. Sorry, yeah, yeah. I was like she played a couple, but yeah, um, um, yeah, she played that one, and yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, I, I think also like it would have been hard for her to get a wild card because of the way the US wild cards are done, right? Like they have a a reciprocal one with the US Open, with the Australian Open, sorry, and then there's one for like the national championship winner, and and then it's most it was all other all Americans other than that, right? Yeah, they 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 do have the exception to give them and they will in certain cases yeah. but but i think she would have had to have well we kind of know i suppose she would have yeah. had to have made a mark in the u.s swing as well yeah which didn't happen really indeed um we will talk about emma Raducanu quite a lot i imagine over the next three four five years but you both have more to say just, <laughs> the, only, the only thing i wanted to say on it james is is I'm going to be interested to see where it goes now, both from her and public perception and also in the UK as well, because as we discussed in our WhatsApp group last night, that the WTA tour is pretty strange now. It's not like the men's. It's going to be a bit different now because there's um, Indian Wells is going to happen, which is a pretty big tournament. But there's nothing massive goes on on the WTA tour from now until Australia, really. Their, their end of year thing isn't really the type of event that, the the men's is so and, and will it even I, go ahead it's supposed to be in shenzhen but yeah um i think they're gonna try and move so i think it probably won't go ahead then will it um also on top of that especially in the uk where she's a huge name now i've told this morning that it's the biggest sports story into uh, in the uk um that of course it's not on television like mm. <laughs> like they, they it was it was a master stroke getting channel four to put it on and i would urge somebody if, if the LTA want to maximize tennis from now to try and strike some sort of deal with Amazon that her matches can be on television because no one's going to be bothered there's a big buzz now because she's won the US Open but with the events that are coming up in the next four months no one's really going to be bothered racing racing through their Amazon Prime menus which does take a while to get to watch <laughs> it they have to make sure it, it she's visible as much as possible yeah. yeah, and and I would encourage that because I'm desperate to win this little wager Calvin and I have put on. <laughs> he, won't win. he won't win at all. Yeah, just, just for background, for the people who aren't in our WhatsApp group, <laughs> i.e. everyone else, um, George is convinced that Emma Raducanu, who is now up to, and I, I have to check this because last time I looked... Now, was, James, I've got it up. 1.6. 1.6, is it? She's out now up to 1.6 million Instagram followers, which means she's added a million in the last three days, which is quite something. Um, the, the comparisons were made in, in the press by uh, pretty naked attempts to kind of draw the eyes of Raducanu's team by Saatchi, uh, who said that she could be bigger than Rihanna which I, I think might be the most blatant attempt I've ever seen to try and tempt an athlete to come and join you from IMG, which, which I can pretty much guarantee ain't happening um, because Eisenbud has got his, his, his heels in pretty hard. Um, the, 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 the question now, I believe, is will she make 13 million Instagram followers? Where has that number been derived from? That came from, I said, if she became the biggest, and the bit well i said even if she makes even if she becomes the biggest female athlete you could even say athlete bar maybe a couple 
the biggest female athlete in the world ever, she still won't be as big as Rihanna is now. And I yeah. stand by that. You can't, as a, as a pop star, Rihanna is huge. Absolutely huge. So then we come down to like, basically, Serena Williams has 13 million followers. So right. that was where, where the figure came from. Okay. Well, we uh, we await with interest. And, and there's 15 years for her to get there. Instagram probably won't even exist by the time ever Adekar is a veteran. Uh, that's actually my biggest fear, is that some other platform's going to come along and like blow everything. That's your biggest fear. I think you need more fear in your life, George. I, I, if that's I'm, I'm, I'm confident this is happening. But at least I'll, I'll, I'll say, George is confident, right? But she's never going to be more famous than she's been in the last two days. And she still has 90% increase to get from where she's at now. Oh, it's not happening. Not the, number, the numbers it's don't grow, It's easier to grow once you've got a bigger base, Calvin. So don't, don't worry about that. This is this is going to fly up. She's eight. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. You're now listening to Instagram growth tips with George Belshaw. Uh, yeah. do, I don't really use Instagram, but I've, I've got some yeah. Twitter followers. No, you've you've grown to 453 followers, and we're all very impressed by that. Pretty big. Well cool. done. I, I've probably been at 453 since I had it. It's just been. <laughs> <laughs> it's just your all your mum's old accounts. Uh, let's let's move on. Uh, the men's final was last night. That's why I'm looking quite blurry eyed. Well, I mean, I haven't been to bed before 3 a.m. for about a week, but uh, that's most of the reason. Uh, and it's podcast, so you can't see me anyway. Uh, Daniil Medvedev beat Novak Djokovic in straight sets, a result the nature of which I don't think any of us really predicted. Uh, Novak Djokovic said that he didn't have his legs, he was below par, basically no serve, um, but everything. I mean, he said that everything wasn't really working. Uh, Medvedev said that he had a tactical plan, he had 15 tactical plans, and that they worked. Um, maybe the best place to start is with Novak Djokovic, who was going for, as we all know, the Grand Slam with a capital G and a capital S because it doesn't deserve it unless it is the Grand Slam uh, to win all four majors in a year. He would have been only the second man in the open era to do so. I'm not interested in hearing about Don Budge in 1938. It doesn't count. Uh, Rod Laver did it in 1969, the first year of fully open tennis uh, in the Grand Slams. He was there on the night. He actually, I think, wouldn't have come to the US Open, he said, unless Djokovic had been going for the Grand Slam. Uh, and I think he was quite disappointed <laughs> that uh, that Djokovic, he's like, oh, great, I just turned up for a two-hour straight sets loss. Uh, but it, it was an intriguing match on so many levels. George, you have to pick one of these. The pressure got to him or his legs were gone? Uh, pressure, yeah. Um, I think there have been signs all summer, we spoke about this at Wimbledon, about how big this was in his head. I think beating Rafa at the French Open was obviously like a huge thing in itself and is a huge thing in itself to do that. But it, but that for him, for Novak, opened the door to him. I should do this. There's no reason I shouldn't do this. Um, and unfortunately for him, maybe there is a little bit of legs in there because let's not forget, this was a, about as tough a run as it could have been of the players who were available. You know, we all said Zverev was the guy we thought was most likely. It would have been interesting had Sissipas landed in that side and gone out in the third round and then it's just Berrettini in the quarterfinals and then whoever else. Um, you know, Zverev did give Novak a serious game in that semi-finals as well. Mm. I thought that was going to be the hardest match for him to win, to be perfectly honest. Um, but, yeah, I, it, it's hard to explain 
other than pressure, why he played that badly. Um, because he did play badly. He played terribly. I mean, that that's the worst I've seen Djokovic play a big match for maybe... I can't, I can't actually think of a worse big match Djokovic has played, yeah. really. In terms of unforced errors, I mean, I think he hit 40 in the end, potentially. The, the, the scoreline score was worse, well, definitely, in the Nadal French Open final last year, but it was it was way close. Like, even that first yeah. bagel was close. Like, there were good, close battle sets. Djokovic was just, I don't know, every big moment he got wrong, every little moment he wasn't doing well. He, it, it took him about three sets to get even half a read on the Medvedev serve. And by that stage, mm-hmm. he was two breaks down. Um, yeah. It was crazy. It was crazy. I've not seen him play anywhere near that badly uh, in such a. I mean, point. that said, to kind of play devil's advocate a little bit, um, you know, there were some pretty big turning points in the match that you know he did get love forty in the second game of the second set. That was and... the biggest moment of the match. He he slices a forehand. I don't know what he's thinking. He's got a short ball. He's inside the service box to take this. Medvedev is kind of in no man's land, and he's rather than just like whack it. Put it past him anywhere. Whack it. It's so hard to lose from that position. That kind of sliced it into a position. And it sliced it where Medvedev guessed. And he had an easy pass up the line. And then Medvedev just comes out, drops some bombs. I think, in fact, I think one Djokovic like sliced a... a it's like, it was the, the third one. The third one, he sliced a backhand return off a second serve into the net and smashed his legs in anger. Um, and that was kind of like, I think there had been frustration brewing. And and yeah. I said, I think I said on Twitter when he lost the first set and as he was losing the first set, I said, I'm not getting fooled by this because obviously he had lost the first set in the previous four matches. And so we were kind of going, oh, here we go. It's Djokovic's slow start playing possum. And then he did that when he missed those three break points. And he had another break point, I think. Oh, no, he didn't. It's a big pardon. Um, and then he obviously smashes his racket. Uh, advantage Medvedev in that game. I mean, destroys his racket. Or, or potentially that was two games later. Yeah, and it, 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 it was the same one cool. because, of course, they you had that moment. And to be fair to him, I could tell he was going to be really annoyed, and rightly so, because he, he was still hanging on in that game. But the AV system... Yeah, so this is, this is potentially the most... I mean, I've got an extended note about this. It, this was at 1-2, so this is actually a two, two games, games later, later yeah, in Medvedev's next service game. And he gets himself to break point. Medvedev misses the first serve, hits the second serve. They're, they're only two or three shots into the rally and some music comes on the PA system. They have to call a let. Um, and then actually, as it happens, Medvedev misses his serve anyway and then makes a brilliant volley to save it. But the, the, the difference was, I mean, the first break point before that, it was a slight, it was a, it was a, a Djokovic-style second serve against Berrettini almost. It was yeah. slow. It was in the striking zone. I think, as you say, he got... It was about to be Medvedev's third shot when the yeah. So you know, but Djokovic, you would have imagined, would get on top in that point. The one well, you say that you was better. You say that, but you know, I mean, and Calvin, you can come in on this. So the the long rallies, Medvedev was winning the long rallies. That was what I found remarkable. And Djokovic was repeatedly trying to shorten points because all of a sudden he was getting out rallied by Medvedev. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I spoke about that on Twitter, actually. I said that it's such a complex battle between those two because both of those players think they can out-rally anybody else in the world except for maybe the other guy. Uh, yeah. who they've both got doubts about because they've, they've beaten each other uh, a lot and they both play. In that respect, they both, although they play differently, their, fun, their foundation strategy is that they won't make unforced errors and the other guy will. 
and those mm-hmm. two don't. And, and I think that's Medvedev's so difficult. I, I don't quite buy the idea. I don't buy the idea that that the pressure is what caused Djokovic the problem in itself. Purely on the basis that there's nobody else in sport who has dealt with pressure more than this guy um, in in so many situations. And he does occasionally have these matches where maybe not quite as bad as that last night, but he has these matches where he's just not there. He's not the mm. racist sometimes, and it, and it, and it's happened. But what I'll say about Medvedev is he's the worst type of opponent to play if you're if what's happening to Djokovic is happening to you as last night because. He basically hits to such a good... He's going to win points on, on serve anyway. He's this freak of a player. There's never been anybody else like him. Is that He gets three points on his first serve. He's huge. He's impossible to get the ball past because he moves so well and he's got such a big reach. And most importantly, he doesn't miss and he hits to a length. So your strategy, your tactics are limited in what you can actually do. And it's mm. kind of like... I said it. I said this when, when George and I did a video about Medvedev a couple of years ago, that he's kind of like a boxer who has a phenomenal jab and he has a reach that's like a meter more than anyone else. Like what, what can you possibly do? You can't, you can have all the strats in the world, but if he just keeps, keeps you on a length all the time, you can't do anything. You can try drop shotting, but you don't drop shotting off a length ball. He hits mm. everything down the middle. So he doesn't give you any angles or anything. And, and it's just him. It's a nightmare because if he's zoned in and if he's not missing, there's not much you can do other than hit clean winners past him. And Djokovic wasn't playing well enough to do that. Mm. I think also what I hadn't, or maybe I hadn't, I hadn't noticed it, but I certainly noticed it last night, was that Medvedev was doing the thing we used to talk about Djokovic doing so well, which is where he, he makes a get. He doesn't just make it, he, he flicks that backhand back cross court. There, there was one that was just stupid where he was out of the point and he hits it from behind himself, cross court on a ridiculous angle and, and ends up winning the point. Um, I hadn't really appreciated that. I mean, the wingspan, we know, but the defensive kind of ability there is incredible. I just want to ask you, Calvin, about the second serve stuff because we saw pretty regularly Medvedev hitting two first serves and it was clearly a strategy. It was clearly deliberate. Um, it came almost came back to bite him because he double-faulted twice on championship point. Um, what's the thinking there? How does that work? I think he thought that he's playing against the best returner in the world ever, probably. And I think he came out thinking, I'm not going to give you what you want. And I think Djokovic was probably quite happy to wait around going, right, He might, he's going to win points on his first serve. I'll win some, but he'll win most, but I'll get him on his second serve. So the thinking was right. He's probably, Djokovic probably going to win 45 to 55%, somewhere between that on Medvedev's second serve. Um, and or maybe a bit more, maybe 60% on Medvedev's second serve. So Medvedev was like, I'm going to take that away. But I think what you noticed at the end of the match is kind of what we're talking about there with uh, what we just talked about earlier with Emma Raducanu. It, it's all well and good going for two first serves when there's no pressure on. And I think then it's all right, it's a different thing altogether when you've got championship point, US Open, you miss your first serve to go, right, I'm just going to crack this. And and he missed, I think he missed three, didn't he, towards the end of the match. But at least he went for them. But um, yeah, it's, it's something he's done before. Like, let's say as well, it's not. Um, I think he's done it. Was it against Team? He did it. Um, did it at the O2, famously. Did yeah, it, that was it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. And it's also one of those. It, it's something I'm amazed that like that more people don't do. Zverev started doing it as well. But I've always been amazed that more, especially the big guys, don't do it more because they've got the height. When you, if you're making sixty-five to seventy percent of first serves, 
why not just do it twice? There's a likelihood that you're going to make it. So why not go for it? Just on, just briefly going back to the pressure of Djokovic, it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on that, the end of the match, that towel cry when that changeover happened. That was the only, that was the first moment I thought, oh man, Medvedev could be in serious bloody trouble here. Novak suddenly hitting really well, suddenly really fired up. And he sits down and just starts bawling his eyes out. I mean, it, I've never seen anything like it with him. It was like, God, they're cheering for me for the first time. They really want me to do this, and I can't. What? I mean, the crowd—the crowd were disgraceful at the end. Like, <laughs> it's one thing you can talk about. You know, we can talk about. You got to cope with the crowd. That was that was as bad as I've ever seen on a tennis court. I remember when Great Britain played um, Italy in Davis Cup, and they put it in a coliseum down in the centre of Naples, and that was pretty <laughs> bad. But it never got to the stage where they were booing the thrower. And, and wouldn't stop. And that's what it got to with Medvedev last night. And yeah. I think it was really bad. And, and I think that was one where you could have under, kind of understood it if he'd gone to peace and he held it together well. But I don't know what it was. It's just nuts, isn't he? I mean, the business with the crying and that, like, I, I don't know whether it was actually, I still don't know whether it was genuine or he's, he just tries everything. I think it probably was. I did, ha it did cross my mind. I was like, are these crocodile tears? Is he trying to get in Medvedev's head? But, but actually, it was it affected him so badly because he just got himself back into the match. He just broken Medvedev for the first yeah. time in the match, and you know the crowd they weren't shouting shouting Novak. That was what I think got him. They were shouting Nole, which is obviously the the kind of nickname that that people call him. And I, I, I he didn't say as much. And I think he he said I was just surprised. I've never felt that kind of support anywhere in the world. But they were shouting Nole, which. Like it's just different. It kind of um, it kind of changes the whole dynamic, and I think it did get to him genuinely. And we've talked about it before. And Kyrgios has said it in quite sort of undiplomatic terms that he does have this obsession with being loved, and he does. It's a huge part of his his whole thing is he wants to be the best player and also the most popular player, and that's why he does a lot of things that he does. And and he did that. He achieved that in that moment. You know, it'd be interesting. I actually thought the crowd were really behind Djokovic all night, like which is kind of strange. I mean, it obviously reached its extreme at that point, but it, is it in a parallel universe if the crowd were against him, does he win that match? Does he just suddenly think, well, screw you guys, I'm going to turn this around? You know, have have the crowd inadvertently denied him history by finally giving him the one thing he actually wanted? It's quite a, a funny little... Paradox. <laughs> there with George Belshaw. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I think maybe you might not be far off, but at the same time, you just he, he went through his normal routine of things, didn't he? It was the like there was one point where he was just looking like completely knackered. He was tanking, and then then suddenly he starts trying again and starts playing the, the, the whole. The whole, he was playing all the hits for a while there, and there was an element of the rope a dope, I think, and he suddenly came to life and fair play to Medvedev because that could have gone really bad. And I think yeah. there was extra pressure on that game because I, I'd even go as far as to say if, if, if Medvedev hadn't served out that game, I think I'd have, he'd have had next to no chance of winning the match. Yeah. Uh, I was actually thinking that as I was like, if he doesn't yeah. win this game, this, this is it. Like uh, there's no way I don't back Djokovic. Because let's not, Medvedev's, let's not forget that Medvedev's a strange character himself in that he's so mentally strong at times. But he's got previous of blowing big leads in mm, big matches. Um, 
and yeah, Nadal at the O2, that kind of thing. And and it, it wouldn't be out of the question because I think it's because he's so nuts and he's he's one of those strange people who's so mentally strong. But then when it when it gets wobbly, he's so mentally fragile as well. Yeah, agreed. Um, just a little bit of breaking news because we discussed it earlier and it's now been confirmed. Um, the WTA finals are not going to be held in Shenzhen. Uh, they're going to be in Guadalajara in Mexico um, the week of November the 8th. Uh, I assume... Second. Yeah, she can't. <laughs> you, don't get, you don't get race points for Grand Slams, do you? Or do you? Yeah, She's yeah of course you Yeah, do. you do, but she'd still have to get in the top eight, which is a bit of a... It's a well, huge she's gap. currently four, she's currently fourteenth in the race, right? I mean, and and if you consider the problem with what she'll have there is in order to get there, in order to get from fourteenth to eighth, unless she has a phenomenal Indian Wells and wins yeah. that, which is good. Emma's never really played a lot of tournaments, yeah, and she might have to go do that and be sort of fit, you know, physically can be a bit fragile. Yeah, um, I'm just wondering if she might. What was that, George? She'll need like a Murray-esque run in terms of ranking. Ah, uh, yes. Of, yeah, the Murray number one push. Um, anyway, women, so that's... Uh, go on. The women's year-end finals, though, it's like the men's, you always... It's not concerned because you normally get the, the winners of the slams in them. The women's are so random now. They might have to get year-end finals. It might have to be four top rankings and four wildcards for Grand Slam winners. <laughs> in which case, she definitely gets in. Um, anyway, we await with interest to see what her schedule looks like for the rest of the year. Um, just to come back to, to the men's um, and Daniil Medvedev specifically, because, you know, we talk, we spend a lot of time saying the next gen have got to start winning slams. And uh, now they have. Uh, this is uh, the second US Open in a row that's been won by someone who's not the big three. Um, Daniil Medvedev, what, what does this do for him? I, I was in the press conference with Gilles Savara last night. And uh, it, someone asked, like, you know, what does this do for Daniil's confidence and stuff? And they asked the question four times because he didn't really understand. And they just kept asking the same question in the same words. I was like, no, no, he's French. You need to change the way you're asking it so he can understand. Uh, and he eventually did. And he said, well, first of all, to beat Novak in a Grand Slam, it's a big thing. And then in a final, that's a big thing. And he said, oh, I wish it'll make him to be at another level. George, do you think this will create another level for Daniel Medvedev, or actually is he already at that level? I think Daniel on a hardcore is at that level. I mean, he's been pretty bloody consistent on those hardcourts for the last two or three years, and I think the only players he's lost to in slams have been uh, Novak in Australia, team in last year's US, and team was really hot then. Um, and then Rafa before that so is and i think maybe stan was wedged in in the australian open who's someone who can just hit through anyone on his on his day so you know he's only losing to the most elite players on a hard court and i think his level's gone up again now where i make him the favorite against anyone who's not djokovic heading into those matches um i i do think this is a really significant win though just generally because i think while the other guys have started having, maybe it's very side, started having big slam wins, they've not been against Novak. Novak, the, I think the only next-gen player I can think of off the top of my head, because I'm not counting team as next-gen, obviously, is actually Hyun Chung, which is really random. Like, remember at the Australian Open, like, yeah. Novak was in this kind of meltdown. <laughs> so that one doesn't really count, but he's the only player I can think of as next-gen who's actually beaten Novak at a slam. 
Um, well, we know that the list of people who've beaten Novak at a slam is vanishingly small. Um, and, and yeah, half the time he beats himself because like Burdich is on there because Djokovic retired and um, the Chung match, Djokovic was not fully fit either. So, uh, you know, he was about to have his second surgery. So, yes, you're right. Uh, Calvin, do you think this changes anything for Medvedev? Uh, no, I think he's been, tennis-wise, I think he's been at that level for two years now. Um He's now all it's going to change. He's now got the belief that he can win them, um, which probably, in terms of that mental side of things, he's he's got. There's no doubts there now. He knows he can do it, and he knows he can do it against the best player of all time, as well mm. um, on a hard court, which has got to give him a load of confidence. I can't really see where, again, similar to Raducanu, I can't really see where he improves his game a great deal, um, other than keep doing what he's doing, which will probably be enough for him to win multiple slams. I suspect. Yeah, I think we we always said we thought he'd get at least three, didn't we? Really, like the three to five sort of mark. I, I, yeah. I'm not sure much has changed on that front, although maybe more. I mean, I suppose the one word of caution is that sometimes these slam wins go the other way, and suddenly the, the wheels just fall off, and you kind of lose that motivation. You know, the thing that's been driving you for so long is to win a slam. You know, that's what these guys are starting off doing. Um, I, I don't actually think that'll be the case with him, but then I didn't really think that'd be the case with teams. So maybe my opinion doesn't count for much from that front. I'm pretty sure I called. He said something very interesting. He said something very interesting last night, kind of on that topic, which he said, "Oh, you know, I never really said because he did this remarkable FIFA dead fish celebration." He said, oh, "I never really celebrated much because I was always thinking about the next thing." And he said, "You know, when I won the Masters in Paris, is it Paris? With the, I think it was there." He said uh, that he was really excited, but really he was just thinking about what he could do next and the Australian Open. And I do think he's got a pretty remarkable attitude in that sense when it comes to just looking forward, Calvin, and and kind of just never really resting on his laurels thus far anyway. Yeah, um, I, was, I was interested to see what he did when he um, when he won because he has got this big thing about not celebrating, hasn't he? And yeah, was kind of, it was so bizarre when he did it. Like, I it's one of one of my, one of my friends, uh, one of my friends from university. That was his FIFA celebration, and he's also a massive tennis fan. He lives in New York, so when Medvedev did that, he went absolutely insane in the group chat. I immediately yeah. recognised the dead fish. Uh, no, I definitely didn't recognise. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, it was. Yeah, I, I don't think there's much to say about it, but it, he's like, he's, that's what he's like, isn't it? I think he's great. He's He offers something different. Um, his interviews are not not boring. They're not agent led like maybe one of the other US Open champions' interviews always are. Um, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I think he's great fun to watch. Well, I think that's probably a good note to uh, to wrap up on. Great fun to watch. George, I'm not mentioning your fantasy tennis exploits. I'm not I, interested in them. I was, I was going to say, it's not me who should be mentioned, but our, our, other, <laughs> our winners definitely deserve a shout-out. Yeah, Queen 4B uh, and Grass is Greener on the Juice Court, uh, who's uh, Isha Rustagi is the Twitter handle attached to that one. 61 and a half points. They both picked both champions, which always helps. Um, Matteo Berrettini featured in there Carlos Alcaraz a big point scorer Botic van der Zand Schulp as well uh, George's favourite player now I can only, only assume set off Medvedev all tournament 
Exactly, yeah. Quite quite the accolade for the Dutchman. Uh, someone said to me, someone said to me, uh, who doesn't know tennis last night, oh, Botic is a great name. Botic van der Zandschel is quite the name, isn't it? And I was like, yeah, the other Dutch guy is called Talon Griekspoor. Uh, they're not short of interestingly named players in uh, in the Netherlands. Yeah, congrats to the people who take part in that. Um, we will, of course, bring that back for the Australian Open next year. It might be new and improved. Uh, it might not be. I might have best things to do. Um, but hopefully you enjoyed playing and uh, and following along. And it, I think the first week is what it really uh, improves. It really kind of adds a bit of extra extra pizzazz to the first week. But George was the uh, the winner of our internal battle. I was resoundingly the loser. I think I finished in like the bottom 25% of everyone who played, which is uh, pretty impressive even for me. I mean, I got really unlucky. I had a really good team. I really liked my team for once and, and I got robbed. Uh, I think that's all that we have to say this week. It's been one of the most tiring weeks of my tennis career. It's been the least tiring of George's because he doesn't do it anymore. Um, but as always, oh yeah, that that's is that you being told you've got to go back to your real job, George? That noise. <laughs> pretty much yeah yeah well as always um please do leave us a, a rating and a review follow us on twitter at love tennis pod and uh, take care of yourself enjoy yourself if you can Cheers, sports social podcast network Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.